Okay, it gives me great pleasure today to introduce Rosie Kay from the Rosie Kay Dust Company. Rosie is a choreographer. She trained at the place in London. Um, she's known for the <coughs> physicality of her work, of her choreography, and also for the, her engagement with the sources that become the subject matter of her work. I think she's characterized by a very thorough research before developing any particular piece. And today she's going to talk about five soldiers, the body is the front line, embodying soldiers' physicality through research and training. And um, it reflects work that she has done with the, uh, with the British Army and touches on some very important and, uh, and, and emotional issues. So, Rosie, thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'm really honoured to be here. So, just a little introduction. I'm going to sort of look at the origins. Where, this, where did this come from? Why did I start looking at the military? A bit of the reading and philosophy behind where the body sits within military thinking. Um, and then go through actually what I did, how I did it, the experiences, and try and give you a picture of that. And then kind of at the end look at what kind of reaction did that get from an audience and how we tried, we also sort of moved the work from just a performative sort of theatre performance into an immersive web-based work as well with some quite sort of, um, sort of new technologies with HD head cams. So my previous work had kind of looked at sort of big stuff. Um, over here is the World Party work I made in 06. It was based on text by a, a 1920s poem that was about kind of looking at the dance in the volcano, the kind of fall of the Weimar Republic, well, the sort of Wall Street crash in Weimar Republic. And I had that as this kind of, I felt very much we were about to go through an economic crash. And literally the week before we finished touring was the crash. So um, then over here is Asylum, which was based on research with asylum seekers. I interviewed them and then kind of made a short duet work that's recently been revived. And this is Supernova, in which I collaborated with an astrophysicist from Warwick University. So I kind of have used sort of big subjects in my work before. Um, now, in 2005, I made a work with Birmingham Royal Ballet, and I was host of the planets, and I was given Mars, which, I don't know if you know the piece of music, it's a massive piece of music. I think I was given it because nobody else wanted it. But I started looking at the imagery of war, and that there's a constant, there's a physicality to both the victims of war and, and soldiers. Um, and it just got me really interested. I started looking a lot at the work of Don McKellen and, and war photography. At the same time, I was a Rain Foundation Fellow. I'm now a former Fellow. This was giving me the chance to do secondments outside the world of dance. So I shadowed MPs in Westminster, Claire Shaw, Ed Vasey, and John Barrett, a Liberal Democrat. I shadowed Anthony Mengella on his last film in Africa, shooting the number one ladies detective agency, looking at film. And uh, who else did I shadow? Oh, I shadowed Sadler as well as Nemi Greco, which were two sort of dance dance economists. So I was interested in the political. Can dance be political? It's not normally a terribly political art form. But I wondered, could we, apart from, say, Kurt Yossel's Green Table, could, could I make political work? After my secondments with Westminster, I kind of felt that wasn't quite the right direction. Lots of men may be in corridors and bad suits, but it wasn't really where I wanted to be going. So... End of 2006, I suffered a very serious injury while on stage. 
so bad they thought I would probably not walk properly again and certainly my career was over at this point. I was dancing as a dancer in my own work but I was kind of a dancer choreographer as opposed to a choreographer. And I went into surgery and I was supposedly getting a bit hamstring out and putting it in an ACL for those that know about knee injuries. And I woke up and it turned out it wasn't as bad as they thought it was. Everything had been really pulled but it was still kind of intact. And in my rather post-anaesthetic haze, about two days later, I had a very, very profound dream. And general anaesthetic always affects me quite, quite massively, quite profoundly. I dreamt I was lying in a desert battlefield, smoking bombs and things going off around me. And I was over here, and my left leg, it was definitely my leg, was way over there. And my first thought was, oh my gosh, what am, what am I going to do? And then my second thought, straight away, was, well, my body is not my soul. You could chop off my arms and my legs, and I'd still be rosy. And I kind of came out of this dream really bit bamboozled. I remember making a coffee in the kitchen, switched on the telly, and it was a time of the Iraq war and what was going on in Basra. It was massive. Actually, the British Army was, was getting out of there, actually. It was a defeat, but it wasn't classed as that at the time. Um, and I suddenly, was, there was a picture of a young soldier, 19 years old, and I suddenly connected the risk that I take with my body on stage and the risk that a soldier takes. I hadn't personalised it before, and I hadn't really realised it was about young men's bodies. It's their bodies and their lives. So, I kind of that started me on a very, very long journey to, to try and understand this more. I just wondered if there was a connection between a soldier's training and a dancer's training. I've withstood a lot of pain since I was three years old in order to execute the movements that I do. I love it. it it's, there's nothing better in the world. It's a real addiction. Maybe a soldier has a similar thing, that it's not a brainwashing, that's actually a physicalisation of, of desires, of needs, that it gives them identity. And also, I wondered, did they enjoy it? Did they really enjoy it? Because why else would they put themselves at risk like that? So it took me a long time to get to join the army. And while I was kind of badgering absolutely everybody I could find, I was reading a lot. And one sort of key text for me was Klaus von Clausewitz on the nature of war, which really is a sort of seminal text on, on, on war, and it's still relevant now. And for me, it's the utmost use of force. You will use everything in your power and then once you've succeeded in war, then you start with the treaties and negotiating the peace. But you must use the utmost force. It's a serious means for a serious object. And the aim is to disarm the enemy, i.e. to kill the enemy. That is the point of war. And the exertion of total power for total victory. I also read um, Elaine Scarry. It's a fantastic book, this, The Body in Pain. It looks at torture as well as war. And her point of war is the main point of war is injuring. And I sort of, just that connection between, the, the, the soldiers know it's all about killing and injuring. But the politicians kind of know this too, but they don't make it explicit when talking to the public. That somehow kind of, it's all about, it's bathed in other languages and languages of technology. It's sort of language of neutralising, disarming, neutering cleaning, cleaning up, as opposed to actually what that's really about, the end of human life and the sort of dismemberment of human bodies. 
And there's also an interesting extension that the weapon is an extension of the human body. Weapons collectively are called arms. And this idea that the, the arm and the gun are connected. And of course, it's a human act to pull the trigger. And also, this idea that, that, that an individual body gets subhumed into a huge, massive body, the body of an army. So you can talk about kind of the body of the army being attacked in the left flank, or there's a vulnerable joint or ear. And you forget that within that huge body of an army, it's made up of actual individual, real people's bodies. And I thought about this language of the technology, the politics, and it was very much not talking about the flesh, the blood, the bones, the vulnerable flesh, as opposed to the hard metals. So I also got really interested in the link between war and sex, and this is a great book, Trained to Kill, Theodore Nielsen, who actually was a soldier in the Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam War, it's an American guy, then retrained as a psychiatrist and became a military psychiatrist. And it's one of the most honest books about particularly the excitement and the thrill and the sexual arousal for men within a war setting. And he talks a lot about this sort of heightened sexual arousal, this fewer unbearable tension, this release that you've kind of survived a contact, this kind of like, it, it, it gives you a hard-on, basically. And this kind of falling in love with other men, that you've put yourself in such mortal danger, that your, your, your comrades become like, that you love them, you love them deeply. And I think sexuality is embraced by war and the military. Um, this kind of a sense of sexual repression, perhaps, that then's only released through war, only released through firing your gun. And that's built up right through the training, in, in, my, in my belief. I was very interested in this about the lustful eye. Combat absorbs us utterly as though the human being becomes one great eye. I was lustful because it requires the novel, the unusual, the spectator. I actually encountered this myself after training and doing exercises that I, my eye started spotting like a sniper how I could get clear, clear view on people. And Marines call it eye-fucking, seek targets and precariously project a killing force. It's got that sense, of, again, the connection with the sexuality and the sort of the objectification of a body to be, to be kind of, to be shot. The relationship with women in, in the military is, is interesting. A quote by Simone de Beauvoir, I think I've spelt wrong. It's not in giving life, but risking life, that man is raised above the animal. Superiority has been accorded by humanity, not to the sex which brings forth life, but to that which kills. So the women have quite a sort of ambiguous role within the British military. It forms about 10% of the workforce, but not in the infantry. There's a lot of argument about why women aren't allowed in the infantry. In Israel, they are. But the British Army used a statistic, used a kind of paper, research paper that said that men might stop to try and care for an injured female soldier, as opposed they wouldn't, they would continue with the mission. And there's a lot of argument about that, but they ultimately don't want women on the front line. However, they are on the front line. They're on the front line as medics. And you meet a lot of young women who have been medics in the front line. Um, now, there was a kind of... There's a point where what are men actually fighting... For, who are they protecting? There's very much a sense of kind of the wife, the girlfriend, the home is a kind of female preserve, and the men go out to fight to protect that. Um, and so when women are actually then involved inside the military, I think that just gives them a slight, just a slight sort of rubbing of, of, of ideals there. I don't think it's articulated. 
but from the woman I spoke to, there's definitely a sense that, that at times it can be quite, quite, quite worrying. Um, and thus, so I have, have quite, a, quite a complicated with, relationship with women. It's kind of okay when they're in uniform, they're seen as equals, but, but there was, even when I was with them, there is talk of like not being strong enough or lowering kind of physical standards and that not being on. But then also a kind of really strange relationship when women get dressed up and put makeup on and suddenly that sort of, uh, sort of asexual role suddenly becomes sexualised again. And so, so there's, a, there's a strange relationship inside the military. So, exactly, in fact, the week, three years ago, I joined the 4th Battalion of the Rifles. It took me over a year to get this attachment. 4th Battalion of the Rifles were just back from Iraq and they were kind of in a bit of a prolonged period before they were due to go out to Afghanistan. So I had two weeks attached with them on battle exercises in the UK. And on my first day, we, I arrived in the night to this barracks. You drive up and it's, it's sort of completely protected by barbed wire. There are armed guards, you have to have everything checked. Then I was staying in the officers' mess, and then in the next morning, we drove off to Dartmoor and we did a four-day and night exercise so that you only have about maybe one to two hours sleep through the, through the, whole, the whole thing. Um, I was living in the officers' mess. Um, I, I learned to shoot a rifle, joined in exercises, and against all my principles, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> it was just overwhelming. The first couple of days um, were quite tough. Um, I think because I was literally the only woman on the, on the exercise, I really had to kind of show that I could keep up with them. And I had this kind of ridiculous experience of being on Dartmoor, absolutely pitch black, it was cloudy, there was no moon, thinking I was totally lost, and then sort of slowly realising that I was in the middle of 200 silent and motionless troops. It was just incredible. I also had to run up a hill as they were firing live ammunition over my head and you hear the crack and thump of live ammunition and it's a completely different sound to, to, to when they fire blanks. Um, I remember sort of hallucinating on my way back from Dartmoor, I was with the regimental sergeant major, Think, woke up and I've just had the most ridiculous dream that I've been on a battle exercise with the military, I looked around and there was a man in uniform. And he said, I think you better get, go back to sleep, ma'am. <laughs> um, it was bizarre to then come out of this covered in mud, four days, four nights, go to an officer's mess, have a beautiful hot bath, and be served a three-course silver service dinner in the officer's mess. Um, I joined them on Remembrance Day services, so we went down to Salisbury Cathedral, and feeling the collective suppressed grief of 600 men as when the names were read out of the people that had been killed you could feel a sort of submerged sob from within them I don't think it will ever be quite the same for me I remember talking with 19 year old guys who said it was just so hard to go back to their towns and see their friends who were just going out and getting drunk every night and they been had such proximity to life and death and also third world countries that they couldn't take for granted their lives in the West ever again in the same way. Um, I had a really ambiguous relationship about actually the rifle itself. Um, there was a point where I went to the firing range and one of the sergeants said, go on then Rosie, do you want to have a go? And then I, I thought, oh, you know, this is maybe that point where I'm not meant to cross the barrier. And then I was like, well, 
as a dancer, as a choreographer, I learned from doing, I learned from physical actions. So let's give it a go. And they taught me how to load and reload and rifle. And then we were doing something called zeroing, which is basically you've got a target about 100 metres away and you're trying to get as close to the, sort of the centre of the bullring as possible. Um, in fact, it's a kind of strange picture of an aggressive man and there's a circle in the middle of it. And um, they were teaching me how to shoot. And it was just so fascinating as a dancer. You breathe in and it rises. You breathe out and you gently pull the trigger in the moment between your heartbeats. And as a dancer, I felt my, my feet on the ground, I was lying on my stomach, my core engaged, my elbows nice and secure, I did exactly that, and I got the highest score in the platoon. <laughs> they said, okay, so I think this is stop being funny now, Rosie. <laughs> Showing us up for us, I want. <laughs> so then, um, through my, my amazing prowess with the rifle, um, I was invited to join a battle exercise, where I actually joined in, as a towel head, I dressed up with uh, full kind of like outfits and shamashes and all the rest of it. And I was an insurgent against the Coldstream Guards who had just returned from Afghanistan. And the Coldstream Guards are massive. Infantry battalions are, are like tribes. They don't like one another. So the rifles are seen as really a little bit creative and kind of independent and liberal thinking. And that's because of the background in the Napoleonic Wars where they had to think independently and they worked as snipers. Whereas the Coldstream Guards are kind of very much seen as the red coats, cannon fodder, very hierarchical. Even in the midst of battle, you'll call everyone by their full titles, whether in rifles, they drop all that ceremony as soon as they're in contact. So I, I was just incredible. I was sort of in this exercise, and I, I sort of understood that as an enemy, there are no rules of war. You can just leap out the window and shoot someone and run back in. Whereas for the soldiers, they have to obey the rules of war, even in the middle of contact. So there's a lot more freedom as an insurgent. It was really interesting. And there was kind of like this moment where after you're killed, you have laser packs. After you're killed, you, you can get resurrected a few times, but then there's a final point where they say, no, no, you're dead now for sure. You have to take the helmet off. And um, I was keeping my helmet on because I just didn't want them to see. I, at that point, I had a blonde bob. I didn't want them to see. And it was like this really massive guy, get your helmet off, get your... I mean, it's so chaotic. You're in this abandoned village, there's smoke, there's sounds. It's absolutely mental. People yelling and screaming, like terrified. Get your helmet off, get your helmet off. So I take my helmet off and the blonde hair came down. It's like, fucking hell, it's a fucking female! <laughs> I felt really a little bit macho at this point. <laughs> so, to contrast the great excitement, I have to say, to be honest, I had a, probably a little bit of a nervous breakdown actually after this. I, I, I really didn't know quite what to do in my life afterwards. I thought maybe I was a soldier or maybe I'd missed my calling. And it took me to my parents being very calm and saying, if you want to do that, that's fine, you're a little bit old. But, you know, it took, took, a, it took a couple of months to realise I had done it for research and that I was a dancer and choreographer. It was just so all-encompassing in two weeks I kind of forgot who I was. And I guess that was what I was trying to do, to see how do they do it. And after the knee injury, when I was doing the battle, I was leaping out of windows. I didn't care at all about my body. I just knew what I had to do in order not to let the other guys down. So to counteract this, um, a few, quite a few months later, I spent a week at Headley Court which is the rehabilitation centre for all the armed forces. So you can have a sprained ankle from a parachute jump in Oxford, or you can have double amputee or what they call complex trauma incident from Afghanistan. And this is where they try and put people back together. Now, when I went there, this was, it was just like this window before things have really come down there. You can't get access. 
Um, the guys are sick of people looking at them. It's so massive, the amount of injuries that are coming out of particularly Afghanistan. It's kind of closed right down now. So I shadowed the RIs, rehabilitation instructors, physiotherapists, um, clinical physicians. I spent a lot of time talking to patients and talking to staff. And overall, it's an incredible military, let's get on, battle on, everything's going to be okay, fine, let's keep going, let's keep going. But I felt underneath there was a huge <coughs> amount of unspoken pain and anger, huge amount. I mean, for example, to get the sort of the counselling, you had to go up some stairs, a bit like a building like this, along, down some stairs and around. And we're talking about guys who have really major assess assess accessibility issues. So it wasn't easy to get counselling, and it's not in the military's nature to talk about this. It's very black and white. Everything is measurable. So as you recover, everything, it's like, well, you've gone this far with your prosthetic legs. Now you've gone that far. Da -da 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 -da. Everything's written down. Feelings aren't talked about. That's just across the board in the military. But you can see that the guys, I could see that the guys were suffering. And a lot of guys get married before they go out. And so when they come back with very severe injuries, they're often having to deal with wives who literally can't look at them because their faces have been blown off. If you think that stopped in the First World War, but it hasn't. There are some appalling injuries. Thousands of young men with appalling injuries and a few young women as well. Um, this guy here, Tom, you might have seen him because he was on the BBC um, programme about, I think it's called Wounded, and he's a parent. I think in the TV programme what was amazing was he was just wanting to get back to Afghanistan. He's now a police officer, so he's managed to kind of find a new, a new career for himself. Um, he is someone, well, there's a reason he's a para, he just has no doubt about what he's doing. So he was already, he's already got one of those minds that's like, I will fulfil the mission under, against all odds. So he's kept that mentality. Now, most of the say infantry soldiers, they're a bit more ambiguous. They're a bit more ambiguous about why they joined the military. The wars have been difficult. Iraq and Afghanistan have been very criticised at home. So when they come back and they're injured, they feel, rightly, a real sense of waste of their own lives and bodies. So this is where life and art started getting a bit confusing because... Some people, are, the guys I trained with at Four Rifles were then went out to Afghanistan. I was due to go and visit Selly Oak Hospital a couple of weeks, months later, when I read in the paper that someone I knew, and I'd actually gotten really well with, had been really seriously injured. And so I went to visit my friend, who I won't name at this point. And so it's completely different to know somebody, able-bodied, six foot four, doing hockey practice with them, you know. And he was a changed man. He'd come back from Afghanistan. He'd lost one leg in an IED blast. He'd shattered his vertebrae in two places. He nearly died from a fungal infection in his other leg, and so his other leg had to be removed as well. And he was what they're called unlucky. If you lose a leg under the knee, it's known as a scratch. If you lose it above a knee or closer to the thigh, it's very difficult because you have less of a hinge. So you're kind of actually using your lower back to then walk with prosthetic limbs. I mean, that's a whole other thing. They go onto prosthetic limbs as soon as possible. They get these little ones called dummies, which is just kind of around the knee. And then they slowly build up using kind of like ballet bars onto sort of prosthetic legs. And it's really interesting that all the men will go back to their original height. That's seen as very important. Unfortunately, of course, you know, they're very, very painful. If you think of like you know, a, a leg is removed, 
the bone starts growing. It knows something's wrong and it starts to grow. But it doesn't grow down, it can grow at right angles. So as you kind of, if you take a stump and you sort of you bind it up and then you put it on into a kind of casing and step on it, you know, you, some men just can't do it. It's just agony. Um, but that's, that's, the, that's the sort of measure of success. Being in a wheelchair is not really acceptable. And all the wheelchairs I saw having worked in disability were like 1930s, huge metal things, not those much more modern things you might know from the BBC sort of basketball adverts. You get these really light, movable ones. So they're trying to avoid people being in wheelchairs. But um, so I went to visit this young man, and seeing him was, was pretty traumatic, but tried to kind of keep it together. But it wasn't just the ward or sort of room this big that was absolutely full of men. It was an entire hospital ward of men full of the most ex you know, extreme injuries, sort of maiming injuries. And at that point, it was a 25% injury rate. So one in four young people out there were coming back with some kind of life-changing injury or death. In fact, 25% includes death. So I think it was almost like one in four patrols in Afghanistan were ending in some kind of incident. I think there's a higher public awareness now, but when I was there, it, 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 there really wasn't. There really wasn't. And in fact, when I spoke to someone in the dance world about what I was doing, she just said, don't go there, don't go there, which I thought was kind of weird. So this is Sally Oak. So, so it, it's, I won't dwell on these too long. Sally Oak's now been absorbed into Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. It's in, it was in a pretty grim place. It was like a former uh, poorhouse in Birmingham. So it was quite, it was quite a depressing place. It's now shifted. When this time I contacted a visual artist called David Cottrell, um, he'd been doing like what I'd been doing, but in the visual arts, as opposed, as opposed to I was doing it from a sort of dance perspective. And together we kind of formed almost every part. He'd been out to some joint medical forces. I'd looked at the training. We'd both been to Heavy Court. We'd both been to Selly Oak. Um, and we felt that we had something... Because we were both terrified about what, what we'd experienced and the magnitude of the work... The public sort of, it was either like Help for Heroes, just, just starting then and kind of uh, Brave Heroes, or it was very liberal, the wars are just wrong, we all protest against them, we've just given up. But we felt through our experiences and also our kind of respect to the people that we'd met, we really wanted to do something about this. These are David's images. So this is Camp Bastion with the big Chinook um, helicopters. So something's happened in a firefight in, in a, what's called a FOB, a forward operating base, someone gets injured or steps in an ID, Chinook is cold, goes, picks them up, medivacs them back to Camp Bastion. Camp Bastion, they're basically just stabilised. Um, they're kind of like, they won't do much surgery, they'll try and clean as much as possible, they're quite dirty bombs. Um, as in shit and crap, we don't think it's, I've heard it's not chemical weapons. They then get put onto a massive um, Hercules like this, which is basically a huge um, hospital, sort of like air hospital, just keeps them stable and alive until we get them back to Britain. And then at Selly Oak, basically they're sort of unwrapped, and you might get a team of maybe five or six surgeons working on you. When I spoke to a surgeon at Selly Oak, he said it's a bit like a multiple car crash situation. You might have a head surgeon with the orthopaedic surgeon with someone that's doing something, you know, I have a whole team, about three, four teams working on something at the same time. So it's like working with three patients at the same time, but on one body. 
And this is a really weird thing, is that you're on a forward operating base that the kind of guys go very, they, 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 it's the real excitement is being out there, that it's very, there's a lack of hierarchy, they're kind of given a lot of freedom, they've just got to kind of survive and all the rest of it. They really love it out there, but it's very kind of like a third world situation. But as soon as you're injured and you get pulled out of there, you're, you're really hitting you know, a future first world medical care system. And the advances of the medical care mean that, that guys were dying literally two years ago from injuries that they're now living from. And there are about sort of three to four quadruple amputees that's losing both legs and both arms. And injuries that three, four years ago would have killed them, they're now, they're now surviving from. Oh, so, it took me another, about another six to eight months building up my creative team Worked talking to a theatre director, a dramaturg, my designer, working with David Cottrell, auditioning piece by piece, and I finally found my full team. Um, I chose five dancers, four men and one woman, because I thought that was quite a good relationship and quite uncommon for dance, but also representative of the kind of the 10% of the army. And we had a two-week process at Warwick Arts Centre which was absolutely fantastic. The director just said, do, do what you will, um, just sort out insurance and liability and all the rest of it. So we had um, weapons experts come in. This is a very scary picture of dancers with SA-80s. And then also we went out and we, we, sort of, we were getting up at sort of three in the morning, going for jogs, jogging to the campus, and then doing full battle training exercises and terrifying the life out of a few foreign students, I think, as we ran around in camouflage gear. Um, it was just to get them really into that mindset and how easy it is to, 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 to play war games on one another. And when you all take it really seriously, it's really, really quite terrifying. Um, we also learned drill, and the rifles are particular because they don't have a one, two, three, four, sort of a four, four march. They have a double time march. Again, going back to Napoleonic Wars, they had to get in front of the main army to kind of do the sniper attacks on French officers, which seemed terribly unsporting. But they do have a very distinctive march, which is quite interesting. Um, and we did, we did all that before then we went into the studio. And then it was about trying to take like key concepts. It was an early decision not to have weapons. I didn't want weapons at all, but I needed dancers to understand what it felt like to have them. So we had a four-week studio workshop um, we showed a work in progress at British Dance Edition. We then had a break. For me, to, I needed a break as opposed to the dancers, but the dancers were just starting to get injuries because I was being very demanding of them. And a break, although it's awful for them because they don't get paid, it means that their bodies recover and they can go gym training and they got much, much stronger. They knew what was being demanded of them. So when we came back, we just started to really kind of put the piece together. And we had two weeks' production in the theatre, and that was a collaboration with visual artist, composer. We also had a military, quite a few military experts came in. One guy, particularly Sapper Mountjoy, was released from two six engineers and he'd been shot through the leg. And he got on really well with one of my dancers. They were both 19. They both had a really like, nothing's going to ever happen to me kind of attitude. Despite the fact that he'd been shot in his leg, it's like, yeah, it's like, did it hurt? It's like, no, no, of course it can hurt. <laughs> and so this is the guys in the studio. That's Michael, it's Tilly, it's Chris Linda. And I think what was really interesting was actually learning leadership skills, actually, from the officers. And, and, and having a team of dancers that weren't a team of dancers anymore, we were like a unit, 
We really were. And I think that's what helped kind of in the long term because we spent two years together on this project and sort of two years touring. And, and that's tough in a dance or theatre company, but as a military unit, it kind of works. We really, really had to bond together. So it was very successful. We had um, two tours, which we just finished in the summer this year. We were invited to Madrid and Dance International Dance Festival, and we had a sort of three to four week residency in Berlin. But we did do some special performances as well. We went to the Rifles Club in Mayfair. We converted their drill hall into a performance space. We built entirely our own theatre with support from the Rain Foundations and private donations. And it meant that a military audience came that would never come to a dance venue. They'd never come to the place. And then I've got a very, had a very enlightened major contacted us from Germany and said, you come out and perform. And then when we got there, we realised that we didn't have security passes and it was all a bit wing of a, wing of a prayer. It was quite intimidating for the dancers being in a military base. And uh, we were actually performing in a converted cinema to pre-deployment troops and their families. She hadn't quite spelt this out to us until we got there. And she said, look, Rosie, they give a book this thick to soldiers who have a reading age of nine, and many of their wives have a similar reading age, who are going to go out to Afghanistan with a 25% injury risk. They come back if they're injured, they'll never come back to Germany. They've lived here for 12 years, they'll never come back to Germany. They'll be in the UK, they'll have three months' care, three months' wages, and then they're out. There's like a little window of about six months where they get some support and that's it. And they did something to get across to them, to the families, to the wives. They had to prepare for this eventuality. It's a big likelihood. So I'd say that was a pretty terrifying performance. But it, it did go down really well, really well. And we did a performance at the town hall as well to raise money. Um, got good critical claim and high press coverage. I've mentioned earlier, we were actually MOD contacted us because we were on Radio 4, the Today News program on the news with dance, which is kind of amazing. And um, the, it was the election, so there was a purder. No, all political parties were not talking about Afghanistan whatsoever. So the only way that the Today program could talk about Afghanistan was through a dance show. So MOD contacted uh, my PR woman, who's also in, in the military, and wanted us to stop touring, but fortunately she said, no, it's a free country. So this is the guys on Paderborn. We did a workshop with teenage girls, because uh, teenage girls particularly are kind of rather ignored within a military environment and hate all the discipline and all the rest of it, but that seemed to have quite a big effect on them. In, you know, dancing it, learning stuff, embodying it. Um, I collaborated with Professor D. Reynolds from Manchester University to collect audience responses. And um, just a few quotes from people um, that, I mean, overall, the feeling was that from military people, we got it right. Uh, the dancers were utterly convincing as soldiers to the military, which was kind of what it was all about. Um, well, it would have been really embarrassing had it not been actually. Um, I think also, like, from a liberal kind of arts audience, it also made them look at soldiers in quite a different way. It did do what I wanted, which is kind of humanise soldiers. As someone saying, I don't think I'll think about them in the same way. I think also, like, I didn't really kind of try and avoid the nasty bits as well, the kind of bullying, the, the sort of losing the plotness, the kind of sexual kind of nastiness within it. But but did it in a way that kind of makes you feel complicit in that as opposed to blaming it. It's about the environment they're in and the tensions they're in. Um, 
so these are kind of on the on the website um, and 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 we had a, an injured soldier who, who said yeah the injury scene was, was spot on was absolutely right the sounds that that, that, that happen after the injury are, are completely correct um, so so it was about trying to get an audience from different environments to really feel immersed inside that world of the soldiers they stop look stop judging them, start to get really involved with them as characters, as people, as bodies. Um, I think music was a really strong part of that, working with Annie. Um, we saw through the audience research that the, the classical music juxtaposed with the kind of military stuff seemed to, to work. I guess that's using kind of film techniques. Um, there, was, there was sort of feedback that, that it felt like you were inside the helicopters, that you were inside this situation with them as well. And as I said, that you stop looking at them as dancers and you're looking at them as soldiers. So um, I'm going to show you at this point, actually. I wonder if I'm going to show you a little clip. Actually, after the first tour, before the second tour, I got a chance um, to think about it in a, in, a, in a different way and see if we could make a film of, of, of some of the material. But we wanted to do it in a way that was like totally immersive. So we... It's a ten-minute version of the of the show. Um, it has like little elements of it, and you can watch it from thirteen different perspectives. So you can kind of go in and be director. So there's one version that's like my cut, the sort of my edit. Um, but then you can go in and you can like watch, follow just just Tilly or just Chris, or actually you can kind of watch it from their own perspective. So we had head cams fitted, and what was really interesting was how dancers this. Like Thomas, who's in his nearly in his forties, he's the officer, and his head cam is just so calm. He hardly he's like really conserving his energy. Whereas this Chris, who's nineteen, and he's literally just like bouncing around the whole time, and it really sort of shows the physicality of their own sort of performance. But they got really good at not moving them too much, and also the other dancers really coming and responding to the head cam as if they're responding to the dancer. And it really made a huge difference in the dancer's acting ability. So when we went back onto the big stage, I saw this enormous like, increase in like the level of subtlety to their own movements, their performance, the emotions going on. Because with film, I had to say, like, you're not acting, you're not acting. But you've got to think through what you're feeling. You've got to be really in the moment. So we've got this huge aircraft hangar in Coventry Airport. And we must have shot it like 50 times, this 10-minute version, to get 13 beautiful shots. I think it sort of suits the subject and the format really well, because I don't know if you've seen, but our war on BBC Three has actually been starting to reveal all the headcam footage. That wasn't out when we were making this, but it, it, it was being used in, in military environments. So if I... Um, I'm just going to show you a little bit. So up here... This is the director's cards. And this kind of cuts between the different... <laughs> and then you can go in and let's... Uh, let's follow... You can follow Tilly. So we go in and we watch... We're just following Tilly. Watching her journey, which... As you go a bit further along, she's got a totally different story going on. And then if we go to following Chris Van, who's the psycho, at this point he's having a big fight. <laughs> but then let's look at what is he looking at. So this is Chris Linda. This is what he's seeing. 
trying to make you go a bit more. This is the one that I said moves a lot. We'll look at, we'll look at Thomas's head cam, he's the, he's the steady one. Where's And suddenly the male gaze on the woman is kind of different. So this is what we just seen in the two-minute clip, but now you're watching it you know, from a completely different angle and you're right in it yourself. And it looks really provocative, but when we go to Tilly's head cam, suddenly it's a very threatening environment with all the men looking at her. And she really is feeling like an object there. I'll go back to this one. But I think what was also interesting was I kind of was stepping out of it a little bit further. It looks like a kind of quite traditional theatre type film. And then even further. And we're going from that environment where you're like seeing them really close up and their feet and inside it. And then to this one extreme where they're like ants. You know, they're completely unimportant. As soldiers ultimately are completely unimportant. So this is online, www.fivesoldiers.co.uk um, um, Please go and have a look, go and have a play. Um, there we go. That's real, that's real sweat, steam. No, but actually that would be last year, a year ago we shot this in November in an aircraft hangar, so that's, that's his evaporation because it was so cold in there. Um, so the references, thanks to this commissioned by International Dance Festival Birmingham and Warwick Arts Centre co-commissioned Arts Council Rifles, and um, thank you very much. Thank you.